good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. This morning, if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're going to really bring to a conclusion uh, one major argument that Paul makes in the book of Romans and then also the chapter. We're going to end chapter 2. It did not take us three years to get through it, um, a little less. And so really dealing with this particular text this morning, I do want to point out a couple of things because when we look at Romans 2 and the argument that Paul makes, really starting in verse 1 all the way to where we are today, is Paul has essentially taken every boast that the Jew would have and taken an ax to it. And, and really the way that I like to think about it is it's really much like a, a three-legged stool. And I've heard arguments made in the past that like, oh, you need all three things to make the stool stand up correctly. And while that's true, Paul was not glad to just remove one leg of the stool. Instead, he takes an ax to every single one of them. The whole premise here is that the Jews go on and they boast. They boast in who they are. They boast in the fact that they were born of Abraham. They boast in the law that God gave them. And now we'll see them boast in their circumcision. And what Paul essentially does is destroy every single leg. The whole purpose is to remove any form of boasting from the Jew. And he says, look, there is no room for boasting in the flesh. There is no room at all, because if you are boasting in the flesh, then brothers and sisters, what you must understand is you must do the law perfectly if you desire to boast in these things. And over and over and over again, what we see the apostle do is just take an ax, destroy them completely. There's no longer any legs underneath the stool. The Jews are sitting on the ground. But brothers and sisters, as we approach this issue, I do think that we can often overlook one of the clear applications of this particular text. We must understand that Paul's argument is not just to remove fleshly fleshly boasting from the Jews, but it is to remove fleshly boasting altogether. That there is no room in us just as much as there was no room in the Jews for any type of boasting of self. As a matter of fact, if we go back and even consider what Romans 1 lays forth, the whole premise of Romans 1 is that you must abandon all means of self-righteousness and all means of justification that is is man-made or produced from your own righteousness and depend upon a righteousness that is born of faith and of faith alone. And this morning, what we'll see the apostle do is destroy the last stronghold, perhaps, in the mind of the Jews. But one thing that I would perhaps present to you as we make our way through this text is that we need to understand the offense in this passage because there is a a real offense given to the Jew. You can imagine after hearing this letter read over you, the Jews have essentially been sitting on this place of, uh, of maybe a bit higher esteem. They've been standing on a pedestal perhaps. And Paul has removed every single ounce of, of, of reason to heighten themselves. He's cast them low. And we need to understand this offense because brothers and sisters, we also need to be cast low. There's a, I I am convinced one of the great difficulties and one of perhaps the greatest offenses of the gospel is the very first thing it does is it lays man in the dust. It reminds him of his own frailty. It reminds him that the strength of his hands is genuinely not that strong. It reminds him that he is in need. And what we must see is that there is a genuine offense here, that they would have every boasting that is a part of their existence cast low. And all of a sudden, they're really standing there empty-handed. 
They're standing there like, I don't have a boast in the fact that I'm a Jew by birth. I don't have a boast in the fact that I know the law and can even prescribe it and understand it rightly. And I don't have a boast, as we'll see today, in my own circumcision. And so they stand there empty. And brothers and sisters, if we could make anything prominent in our own lives is that we should stand there often with hands open, empty. I am in need. There's nothing that I have to boast in. Because when you stand there, empty-handed, knowing that I have nothing to boast in, we'll finally begin boasting in the only thing worth boasting in. That the righteousness that we have is from God. That the glory of the gospel is that I have nothing and he has all. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 25, making our way through verse 29. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Father, this morning, may we come empty-handed. And Lord, even as we examine this last point of boasting for the Jew, would you remove any boasting that's left in us? Lord, would you remove any ounce of righteousness that we might have, whatever it is that we may lay hold of and claim as some superiority or some purpose for boasting, would you cast it aside so that we might delight all the more in Jesus Christ and the righteousness that he has provided for us? And Lord, would you help us to see that there is an inward work of the Spirit that is mighty, that is powerful, that it is perhaps one of the greatest demonstrations of the power of God that we often overlook because it is common to the saints. But Lord, would you help us to see it and would you help us to stand in awe? Would you help us to see the circumcision made without hands, regeneration, that new birth, that new birth that brings us into the kingdom of God and calls us sons and daughters. It is in the name of Jesus Christ and through his blood we pray, amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning is this, abandon all fleshly hopes and depend on the circumcision made by the Spirit abandon all fleshly hopes and depend on the circumcision made by the Spirit. Now, really, the sermon in a sentence will, to some degree, guide our, our text this morning. And what I mean by that is there's really two major points that Paul's making. And the first is that acts. He wants to make clear that there is absolutely no room for boasting in a physical circumcision and some mark that's given to an individual that would mark them as the people of God. There's no room for boasting there. And so the very first thing that we want to see and perhaps even apply to our own lives is that there needs to be an abandonment of all fleshly hopes. There needs to be a removal. We need to see if there is anything in our hands and cast it to the wayside and see that there is only one means of hope. So the first thing we need to do is abandon all fleshly hopes, but then we need to see, we need to understand what Paul is arguing here because the beauty of Paul's arguments almost always throughout all of his letters is he wants to destroy everything that is foolish, perhaps every elementary principle, and then he wants to build it back up because the purpose of Paul's writing is not to leave you on the ground. It's not to leave you sitting there in the dust. The purpose of Paul's writing is to seat you upon something that is infinitely more glorious. 
It's not to leave you on perhaps sinking sand, but to place you on that rock of Christ so that when you stand there, you know that nothing can be yanked from underneath you. That there is a confidence in standing there. That there's a confidence in resting in those things. But first, as it almost always is, that which we cling to, that which we delight in, that which provides perhaps some self-glorification must be destroyed. And when we read this particular text, that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's taking that which perhaps is most prized to the Jews and saying, away with it, you've misunderstood altogether. And so let's turn our attention to that text because that's exactly what we see the apostle Paul do. He turns his attention to the Jews' last, if you will, boast, and that ultimately is circumcision, and he begins to dismantle it. Now, let's understand the Jewish understanding of this. I said last week that we were dealing with the historical perspective of the Jew, and really what we see in this particular passage is he deals with the historical Jew, and then he begins to transition into this rather interesting, and, I, and maybe some would say new, but I wouldn't say new understanding of a true Israel. It's always been this way, but it has often been forgotten. You know, I liken this largely to the Reformation. There's this argument that's often made is that in the Protestant Reformation, we discovered justification by faith. Brothers and sisters, that's not the case at all. We rediscovered it. It was seen. It's always been revealed in the Holy Scriptures that we are justified by faith alone. In the exact same way, what we see Paul doing is destroying this flawed understanding of a sign and rebuilding the biblical one. And so let's look at his destruction of it, if you will. First, we see him point out the understanding of the Jewish people because he says in verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. And so immediately what we must consider here is that the, the mind of the reader is thinking about a physical circumcision. They're thinking about the mark that was given to them to mark them as the covenant people of God. And as they're thinking about this, they have some boasting, but they really, are, they really do see that there's a misunderstanding of it altogether because they see it as a mark of the letter, ultimately obedience to produce righteousness. And I don't know if you've ever considered the foolishness of boasting and circumcision for the Jewish individual, but brothers and sisters, they had nothing to do with it largely. They don't remember it. There's no recall of the moment of circumcision and they certainly did not volunteer for it. Ultimately, what you see taking place here is they have some mark that was given to them by someone other than themselves and they find great joy in it. They boast in it and ultimately they boast in it because they believe that it produces some form of righteousness, that it identifies them as the people of God. And going back to that previous section in Romans 2, they think because they're the people of God, God will show partiality. But we already know that he most certainly will not. So they think to themselves, ah, but we have the mark of circumcision. We have this physical mark. And because we have this physical mark, we have been marked by God. And ultimately it is a sign of the righteousness that we have. And so, you know, as you go on in this particular text, it says for circumcision indeed is a value. And we should say in agreement with the apostle Paul, of course it does. Of course it has value. And then he goes on to say, if you obey the law, and so we must understand, much like each and every one of the last few sermons that we've dealt with, is there is a reality in which that if you do pursue glory, honor, and immortality, that if you do good, then you will be given eternal life. In the exact same way that for those who have the law written on their hearts and do the law, then they will be given peace and they will be justified. In the exact same way, those who have circumcision, if they obey every ounce of the law, it will be to them righteousness. We must say yes and amen to this. And even then, Galatians 5.3, he reiterates this in a rather similar passage. In Galatians 5.3, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. 
And so we should say with the Apostle Paul, of course, there's great value in circumcision, but the value is there only if you keep the law with perfection. And so if you boast in the physical sign of circumcision, if you boast in this mark that God has given you, then know that you must boast in such a way that looks at every other ounce of the law and says, I've kept it all with perfection. That's the only reason that you would have any room for boasting. And so essentially Paul looks at them, or or perhaps better yet, they look back at Paul and they say, we will obey and we will live. And so because they have this sign, they think, okay, I'm going to white knuckle this. I'm going to keep the law with perfection. And because they're going to keep the law with perfection, they would be able to go on boasting. And brothers and sisters, they would be able to go on boasting. If they had the sign of circumcision, if they faithfully obeyed the law to every dot and tittle, then most certainly that they would be able to have a righteousness of their own and they would be able to stand before God and boast before him. I think that that, is a really clear way to understand that text. But you know, as we've looked at all of the other ones, it seems as though he presents these concepts. Yes, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. White knuckle this, do the law perfectly. And as they aim to do the law perfectly, they look to themselves and they think, oh no, I've coveted. I've coveted. And since I've coveted, it seems as though my circumcision ultimately has no value at all. Because if we understand what Paul is arguing here, we must understand that righteousness through the law is always all or nothing. There is no middle ground. There's no one that's going to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, I kept most of it. And then he will welcome them in. By no means. As a matter of fact, if there's one ounce of trespass in regard to the law of God, then you will be cast into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I read to you Galatians 5.3, that text that says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Any man who looks at that and does not immediately tremble before it has missed the whole premise of the argument. To, to place it back in its appropriate context, Galatians 5.2-4 is the complete context of that verse. It says, look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Meaning that if I aim to justify myself by the law, I have essentially removed Christ and all of his benefits from me. I have said, I would rather keep it. I would rather justify myself so that there might be some praise for me. But let's continue the reading. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Listen to this language. If that's you, If you Jew are hearing this and you think you're going to justify yourself through your own obedience, verse four, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now this is rather clear and precise language by the apostle Paul because he's saying that if your premise is that you think you'll be justified from some severed flesh, then understand this, that as you think that, so you will be severed from Christ. And so Paul looks at them and says, oh, you aim to justify yourself. You aim to boast in your physical circumcision. So be it. Have you kept all of the law? Have you done so perfectly? Have you coveted? And I do think it's interesting that in Romans 7, Paul uses covetousness. It's one of those trespasses that is often forgotten and perhaps one that really does rise up in the heart of man quite frequently. And he looks at the Jew and says, have you coveted? And if you've coveted, then know that your circumcision has ultimately become uncircumcision. Now, I want you to see this because what Paul does here is not just attack the idea of justification through the law. He essentially removes any opportunity for it. I just want you to notice verse 25. It really is largely a comedic argument. 
For circumcision is in, indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. He essentially looks at every Jew and says, you're all uncircumcised. You have no room for boasting. You have no room for praise because you've trespassed the law of God. He uncircumcises everyone in the room. He says, there is no room for you boasting. If you think that you have some room for, a, for boasting in a physical mark, just know that there is something that you truly are missing in your soul. And it is something far greater than a physical mark. It is something that is necessary to actually be a believer in Christ. And so he removes all ounces of boasting. He says, if you've trespassed the law, then it's of no value. And if you think you can boast in a fleshly mark, then know that that too has been removed. There's no room for boasting. But then just in case there be any pride left in them, he begins to make this really interesting transition because as the Jew goes on boasting in the physical mark that God has given them, he then does a brief examination of a man, of a man who is uncircumcised but keeps the law with perfection. Let's look at verse 26 and following. It says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as circumcision? Obviously, this is a rhetorical question, and his answer is yes, he will be. If he keeps the law with perfection, this man, if he keeps the law with perfection, then his uncircumcision will be indeed regarded, by, regarded as circumcision. He bears that mark in him. And you can imagine the Jews, as they're hearing this, as they are really being destroyed in their boasting of a physical mark, Paul then gives it to another man outside of the covenant community of Israel. If one is righteous, if he really has perfectly obeyed the law, if he's done so with, with perfection, and not only perfection, but adoration, he has perfectly fulfilled the law and yet is without the mark of circumcision, then it will be regarded to him as circumcision. Now, why is that? Certainly, that you would, if, if they were thinking physically, how? Circumcision is physical. Is there something more to it? And I think that really does begin the question. Well, is there something more to this? Is it more than just a physical mark on the body? Is it something deeper? Is it something more? And if we look forward to Romans chapter 4, we'll see that perfect holiness marks this man as righteous and thus circumcised because, brothers and sisters, circumcision is given to those who are righteous. And so the one who is righteous, the one who has kept the law with perfection, he stands before God as a circumcised individual because he is indeed righteous. We'll see this come to conclusion here in a moment. But just place this for a moment because I want us to recover, if you will, the offense that would be wrought in the Jew's mind at this. There's one outside the covenant community who's perfectly kept the law. He's righteous altogether and he's standing next to the Jew who has all of these promises. He's born of Abraham, he has the law of God, and he bears the mark of circumcision. And there be one outside the camp who's perfect altogether. Paul's looked at the Jew who has broken the law and said, you are uncircumcised, you have no room for boasting. And then he looks at one outside and says, he bears in his body the mark of righteousness. And you're left empty. Nothing in your hands. The Jew has been dismantled altogether. There is no room for boasting left in him. And brothers and sisters, if Paul did any kindness to the Jews, it was Romans chapter two. Because he removed all boasting. And if we could, just for a moment, reclaim our understanding of kindness. Because you read Romans chapter two and you think, they are out. I'm done. I can imagine every Jew in the room squirming, longing to walk out, except for a few except for those who 
perhaps are hearing, they're beginning to understand, and we'll deal with those in a moment. But brothers and sisters, I think we would do well to reclaim our understanding of kindness that those who would yank any boasting away from us and point us to Jesus Christ are the kindest of men. And here we see Paul express that and express so rather excellently. And so he says, you have no room for boasting. You can imagine how humbling for the Jew to see that which he boasts in given to those Gentiles alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and yet they are the ones who were marked. But we need to remember that this is a hypothetical argument. There is no Gentile, there is no man who has kept the law perfectly without circumcision. Not one. You know, this would be one of those moments where we would say, oh, this is pointing to Jesus Christ, but brothers and sisters, it's not. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He was circumcised, but ultimately what we see here is that Paul is making a rather unique and beautiful argument, bridging a gap, bridging categories from those who would boast in their physical birth to those who should be boasting in a spiritual birth, to those who should be boasting in a spiritual mark. And so what Paul is doing is he is pulling the Jew from their weak understanding of circumcision. And essentially what we see in the conclusion of this is that at just at the end of verse 25 and 26, we have an unrighteous Jew, though physically circumcised, isn't circumcised. Well, that's difficult to understand. And then we have a righteous Gentile, one who is outside the covenant community, though he is uncircumcised, is circumcised. And so how does this play out? How can we understand this? Because it seems as though he's working from two categories. And brothers and sisters, he is working from two categories. There are those that have a physical circumcision that are not circumcised of heart, which is ultimately where we're going this morning. Because what we must understand is there is reason to boast in a circumcision of the heart, but there is never a reason to boast in a circumcision of the flesh. Now, the boasting that we have of the circumcision of the heart, which we'll see here in a moment, is a boasting of our emptiness. It's essentially saying, I have nothing to bring to the table. Everything that I have has been given to me by your grace. So let's examine what Paul continues to argue in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. Because he looks at these guys, these men that he's writing to, and he says, okay, we've introduced a new category. And perhaps it is that there would be some in the room who would instantly hear it and say, wait, 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 this isn't a new category. This has always been, and we'll see that here in a moment. So Paul dismantles all pride according to the flesh. No Jew is one merely outwardly. And you can imagine in verse 28, it says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And you can almost imagine the Jew looking down at himself and saying, well, wait, am I then a Jew? And then it goes on to say, nor is circumcision outward and physical. And there would be a question even then, are you sure you're circumcised? The whole premise here is, Am I really what I've always been claiming to be? Am I really a Jew? Am I of my father Abraham? And then do I bear in my body this mark? So how should we understand this particular text? We should understand it that Paul is pointing us to a spiritual reality, something that is deeper than any point of physical boasting. So let's examine this for a moment because essentially what he's saying is that a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Those are the two categories that I want to examine. So what does it mean to be a Jew inwardly? I mean, Jew outwardly is not difficult. You're born of Abraham, right? You have the law, you have circumcision. Those are clear indications that you were born of Abraham, that you are a true Jew. But Paul essentially says, well, that's certainly not the case. So what is? Let's understand what a true Jew is. A true Jew does the works of Abraham. A true Jew does the work of Abraham. He is not born and thus makes him a Jew. 
There is something more. There is something deeper in the spiritual sense. Listen to John 8, 39 through 40. This is a conversation that Jesus had with some of the Pharisees. And if we could recall just for a moment, the Pharisees would be those men who boast more in their birth, who boast more in their knowledge, who boast more in the signs and symbols. They would be the proudest of men. And Jesus looks at them and they, they say, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And he will go on to call the Pharisees here, those who would be the highest scholars, those who would be the most renowned Jews in the land. He calls them sons of the devil. Jesus looks at him and says, you're not a son of Abraham. Why are you not a son of Abraham? Because you are not doing the work of your father. And that leads us to ask the question, what is the work of Abraham? How is it that we can be a true inward Jew? How is it that we can do the works of Abraham? Well, Genesis chapter 15, verse six tells us the works that Abraham did. You'll be surprised to know, brothers and sisters, it really isn't work. Genesis 15, six, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And what is that? Seal of circumcision, it's a seal of righteousness. And if I could ask even for a moment, when did Abraham receive that sign of circumcision? Only after it had been applied to his heart by the Spirit of God. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so what is the work of Abraham? What is it that makes us truly Jews? That we believe the Lord. I want you to hear how simple that genuinely is. When we look at Abraham's work, brothers and sisters, if we were to do an examination of Abraham's labors in the book of Genesis, he did much, did he not? It wasn't that he went forth to sacrifice Isaac. It wasn't that he left his own land. All of those are fruits that were produced from the fact that he believed God. He believed God. And as he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. So how must we be doing the works of Abraham? Brothers and sisters, we believe him. Have you ever thought of the faith that is necessary, really what it means to trust in the gospel? It's looking at Jesus Christ and saying, I believe you. I believe that you have borne your, my sins in your body, that I might die to sin and live to righteousness. I believe that you will keep me. I, will, I believe that by faith that I have an eternal reward kept in heaven for me by grace and by grace alone. Brothers and sisters, this is what the work of Abraham is. It's that we believe God. And so since we long to be a Jew inwardly, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, believe God. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust that he is true, that he is right, and that he most certainly cannot lie. And this would perhaps lead to them to ask a question. Have you believed on the Lord for your righteousness? Because as they're boasting, place this back in the argument that's being made, as they're boasting in the things that they have to make themselves righteous, Paul says, no, 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 let go of all of those things. And the simple question is, have you believed God for your righteousness? Have you looked at Romans 1.16 that, that I just penned moments earlier? Have you seen that and said, it's by faith that I will be saved? I shall believe God and it be counted to me as righteous. And you can imagine that there would be many Jews in the room who in a moment, went from boasting in the flesh to abandoning all fleshly hopes, all self-righteousness, and looked to Christ and said, there is my righteousness, I will believe on him. And I will abandon all belief in self. So what must we be doing? We must be doing the works of Abraham. What is a true Jew? One who does the works of Abraham. Now, what's rather interesting about this is, this is inclusive. It's astonishingly inclusive. Brothers and sisters, 
What we see from this text is that those who were Gentiles, those who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, have been brought near not just in some abstract way, but truly. They have been brought near to God. The commonwealth is now theirs. Why? Because they're sons of Abraham. They've believed God and it has been counted to them as righteousness. And so what we see here is this dismantling. And you can almost imagine the Jew in the room beginning to look at his Gentile brother and sister and seeing them differently because they bear in their body the mark of faith. And that mark unites them uniquely. But going forward, that leads us to ask the second question. Paul comes and he's reminding us of what it means to be circumcised of heart. And he breaks it down in a rather lovely way. If you look at verse 29, it says, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. There's a couple of things I want to point out here because obviously what we see here is not a circumcision made by hands. We see a different circumcision. It isn't physical. It doesn't have room for boasting because ultimately it's done by the spirit and by the spirit alone. But there are three major things that he identifies in this particular text. If we understand the circumcision of the heart, we must understand that it does not come by the letter. It is done to the heart, not the flesh. And lastly, it is a work of the Spirit. So let's look at each of those. First, it does not come by the letter. It is not about some physical observation. Instead, it is something that comes about by the Spirit. If you look at Colossians 2.11, it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh. The whole concept is there is no fleshly way to bring this about. There is no means of obedience or anything of that nature that will ultimately see this produced in you. It is actually the removal of those fleshly things. It's casting them away and beginning to trust in Christ and what he has accomplished. And so in Colossians 2.11, it says that it's by putting off the body of the flesh. It's by putting off a means of justification that is by the letter. It looks at the letter and says, I see what you are doing. And ultimately looking at it rightly, it says, You are in need of Christ. You are in need of one who is able to rescue you. You are in need of one who can save because the circumcision that you have is not sufficient. You need something deeper. I would liken this largely to the text we see in Genesis chapter three, where Adam and Eve clothe themselves with fig leaves. I think, ah, I'm covered. I've done some work. I've made myself clean. I'm no longer naked and thus ashamed. And God comes by and he says, goodness, You're naked and you should be ashamed. And then we see him do something. He closed them with something deeper, something better, ultimately pointing ahead to the finished work of Christ. But what we see here is it cannot be made by the letter. Though we see the shadow of it in the letter, it is not the true form by the letter. Secondly, it is done to the heart and not the flesh. And this is why I said earlier that it's much like the Reformation this moment. Because it's not, the re- it's not the discovery of justification by faith, it's the rediscovery. It's seeing it clearly laid out in the text. Brothers and sisters, Jesus looks at Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and says, you're a teacher of the law and you don't understand these things? And this is the very topic that he's dealing with. And as you look at this text, when it says it's done to the heart, not the flesh, the Jews should have known that. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six, this is what the Lord says to them. I want you to hear this. This is explicit language. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. They knew what that meant physically, but God had already declared it to them in Deuteronomy. Brothers and sisters, this is the first five books of the Bible. And actually, this is a recitation of events that had already occurred. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says, you are in need of a circumcision of the heart. And what will that do? 
so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What is it that I need? I need a circumcision of the heart. I need something deeper. And any Jew who believed the words of God knew this. You can imagine even in their hearing that those who would study the law of God as they're hearing Romans read over them, they would perhaps conclude, ah, the circumcision of the heart, I have forgotten this. But by God's grace, they are reminded and they are reminded that they are in need of a spiritual work done inside of them. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, this is such a beautiful text. And I would argue that what we have inside of this text is a correlation. What we have, these these three doctrines that really do summarize one, circumcision of the heart, regeneration, and the new birth. All of these are the secret work of God that occur inside the man that make them a Christian. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, I think we see what really needs to occur in the circumcision of the heart. It says, and I will give you a new heart. The old one must be gone. Not pieces, not parts, but all of it. It must be conquered by Christ. In Ezekiel 36, 26 going on, it says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. What is that mark of circumcision? By the spirit, it marks us as his covenant people. It marks us as those who are his. And what is that mark? It is the removal of a heart of stone. It is the old man dying and the new man being made alive. This is the circumcision of the heart and it is what we desperately need. Here is what is most tragic. We see circumcision of the heart all the time. Brothers and sisters, if you've had the opportunity to witness, to share the good news of the gospel with an individual and see them come to saving faith, you've watched a man go from death to life and you assume it ordinary. You assume it ordinary because brothers and sisters, in reality, it is quite ordinary for our God to do that by his grace. He births new members of the family into the kingdom of God day in and day out. It is that new birth that we see promised as we'll see here in a moment in John 3. We must understand that this is not a light work. It is a glorious work. It is a conquering of that wicked man who is dead in his trespasses and sins. And it is God by his grace and the Spirit giving life to us so that we might do all that he has commanded. You see, what the Jews understood is they longed to produce their own righteousness. But what God had always promised is that he will birth righteousness in them. And then and only then will they obey his commands and his laws and delight in him and love him deeply. Every saint has to have this circumcision of the heart. It is that which marks them. It is that which says they are in the covenant community. But lastly, let's see that it is a work of the Spirit. It is the secret act of the Spirit by which the old man is removed and the new man is made alive. And we do turn our attention to John chapter three for this. I love this story. And it is one that we read through quickly because we long to get to John 3, 16. But brothers and sisters, the mystery of the gospel is revealed in John 3, 3 through 8. Let's read it together. Jesus answered him, speaking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to hear this. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Going back to the original premise, there is no means of fleshly working that will produce something other than flesh. It is an impossibility altogether. And as you attempt to white knuckle it, and as you attempt to bear your own righteousness, know that as you bear your own righteousness, you're bearing a fleshly righteousness that will be cast into hell. 
The righteousness that is produced from God is a spirit giving birth to spirit, spirit giving birth to what is true, what is real life. And then he looks at Nicodemus, Nicodemus and he says, uh, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Brothers and sisters, one of the most precise and, and important ways for us to understand the circumcision of the heart is though we do not see it actively work, we certainly see it acted out. You know those brothers and sisters who were dead in their trespasses and sins, and now you see there's something new in them. The Spirit has given birth to Spirit in them. And though they were men who produced the most heinous and carnal sins, now they delight in their God, they obey His commands, and they are the ones that you long to have sit at your table because they spur you up to love and good works. That was not born of them. It was born in them by the Spirit. He has carved those beautiful truths upon their heart and they cannot remove themselves from it. No, they would not if they could because they delight in it. They are born again. Brothers and sisters, as we look at this particular text, the reason that I love the argument and the reason I see it as so kind and lovely is because Paul essentially takes an ax to to legs that are creaking, to legs that are frail, and to legs that will break at the first sign of difficulty and he places them upon an immutable ground says, should you be born again? You are born into his kingdom. You will receive the mark that identifies you as a child of God and you will be kept for all your days. He builds it back up in a lovely way. And we'll see that over really the rest of the book of Romans. But I think there is just one more thought that I'd like to present to you. What is the marks of those who are circumcised of heart? What do you think happened in this moment for the Jew who genuinely was circumcised of heart, the one who really still had these remnants of the old man left, but they had been born again, that God was still at work in them, identifying all these things? What do you think happens in them as Paul attacks their their genealogy, Paul attacks their boasting in the law, and ultimately the last thing, Paul attacks their circumcision? What do you think is going on in their souls as Paul's arguing this over them? I think what you would actually see in those who are born again is that they would gladly walk out of this conversation saying, I have no confidence in the flesh. None. Zero. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 says this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And I want you to hear this, and put no confidence in the flesh. None. They've come to look at their empty hands. They see there's no more boasting in genealogy, no more boasting in the law, and no more boasting in circumcision. They look down at their hands and they say, it's empty. Good. Praise be to God, I have nothing to boast in of myself, lest I be given over to it and make it an idol. Praise be to God, he has removed every ounce of boasting in me, and all that's left in my empty hands is to see Christ through them, is to see and understand that there is a promise, and that promise is where they then rest upon. So not only do we see that they come with no confidence in the flesh, and brothers and sisters, if you truly be circumcised of heart, there is no ground for boasting. There is no ground for boasting whatsoever. Instead, there is perhaps a new form of boasting, a new form of joy, a new form of confidence. In Romans 4, 13 through 16, it says this concerning Abraham. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, not through the law and my own ability to keep it, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. But the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So what are the marks of those who have been circumcised of heart? They place no confidence in flesh 
And yet they have a great confidence upon the promises of God that are laid hold of by faith. Their, their, their confidence shifts dramatically. One was an empty confidence, vain altogether. And this new confidence is a glorious and righteous boasting in the fruit that God has produced through Christ and his finished work. And I can imagine that as those who have been circumcised of heart, as the Jews who hear this argument and brothers and sisters, perhaps it is that you stand here today, you think to yourself that there's much that you have to offer God. I would encourage you to see your empty hands and delight in them to see that there really is no ground for boasting in you. There is no works that you can do in righteousness that will produce the righteousness of God in you. The only thing that it will produce is flesh that gives birth to flesh and God will condemn it all. But should you see the way that those who would hear and understand by the Spirit see, should you see the way that the Spirit who has circumcised the heart has given us the ability to, then we would perhaps say something along these lines. Give me not a fleshly birth that gives birth only to flesh, Give me not a law that is broken with my first breath. Give me not a physical sign that I rob of power by my unbelief. Give me the spirit who causes me to be born again. Have him write the law upon my heart, knowing it to be fulfilled in the man Christ Jesus. Give me a circumcision of heart made by the spirit that marks me and seals me. Give me Christ and all his riches and I will count all earthly boasting as rubbish of the worst kind. Cast it all away. See all fleshly Forms of righteousness as evil, as wicked, as rubbish. And if we understood what that word rubbish meant in its truest form, I could not say it from this pulpit. Count it as garbage, as trash, as refuse. Turn to Christ and see a righteousness that is produced by faith and by faith alone. And boast, boast in a circumcision made not with hands, but made by the Spirit, for it is God's mark upon you as His people.